It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Let's rewind the clock in our World War II series back to May of 1942. The situation is dark for the United States. Japan has the upper hand in the Pacific Theater, and the American naval powers are weakened and vulnerable due to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But the shocking and unexpected turning point of World War II is about to unfold in the Pacific Ocean at the Battle of Midway. Hey, this is Eric. The Church of Jesus Christ is in a battle of Midway at present. It feels kind of like a David-Goliath battle. The boasting and the crooning of the giant can be heard around the world right now, and the church appears to be nothing more than a young, tattered shepherd boy delivering bread and cheese to the battlefront. But don't underestimate the latent power planted inside that young, tattered shepherd boy. Just like the Battle of Midway, the arrogant and evil powers in our day are overstepping and believing themselves to be untouchable. Meanwhile, the desperate, outgunned, outmanned, and tattered are ready to pick up five smooth stones of faith and deliver the fight of their lives. If you would like to access this entire Daily Thunder series on World War II, please visit ellersley.com forward slash daily. It's the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. We are uh, in a definite ghost town-ish season here at Ellerslie. I'm not saying that you guys are ghosts that are present here. But it's, you know, compared to what we've had all fall, you know, with all the students leaving, it's, it's always tough for us as a leadership. But uh, at the same time, one of our passions here at Ellerslie is to stay constant no matter if it's in season or out of season. We just want to be ready with the gospel. And that's part of what this Daily Thunder project is, is just to stay consistent and to preach the word daily. I am in the midst of a very long but very fun, very interesting series on World War II. And so for those of you that are familiar with the series, you'd understand what I mean by fun. It has been a delightful uh, series and just an incredible parallel with the times in which we live. Uh, We live in such a unique hour. We are currently in uh, November, November 20th of 2020. That's sort of a cool date. And uh, things are uncertain in our country right now. And if you look at it from a political vantage point, it's very uncertain. If you look at it from a spiritual vantage point, it's extremely uncertain. And uh, it's, it's a unique thing when uh, the, the, the state of the church hinges or is directly related to the state of politics. That's, that's an unusual dynamic because the church is not dependent upon politics. But in this situation, there are certain dynamics that play into the future of everything we do here as the church in America. We have been a beacon of light uh, historically to the nations. We have been a groomer of missionaries uh, to go into all the world. And in many regards, we have forsaken our first love. We have lost sight of the rich privilege that we have in this country to actually change the earth. And instead, we have begun to use that wealth and that strength and that liberty upon ourselves. And when the church begins to spend upon itself instead of uh, upon the glory of God and upon the needy around the world, it causes a breakdown, a deterioration. We have been caught red-handed. We've been caught red-handed in this hour focused on ourselves instead of on the king and the king's passions. And I think there is a stirring. I know there is inside of me. I know many uh, Christians around 
uh, our country and around the world right now at present that are deeply stirred, deeply desirous to see God turn the circumstances towards uh, righteousness. At the same time, I see the same group saying, God, your will be done. If, if you know this is what is best for your church to awaken us, if our church cannot be awakened in and through the current circumstances, then what is necessary? Lord Jesus, we desire your bride to get its wrinkles out because we want your ends, not our own. We're after his glory, not our comforts. And that's a unique tension because as Americans, we are groomed for comfort. And so to begin to make decisions that are bigger than ourselves is like... Uh, it's, it's growing up. It's getting rid of our, we call them binkies in our house, passies. You know, it's, it's taking the passy out. It's, it's time to grow up and uh, behave as the church of Jesus Christ. This is called the underdog principle. Uh, you'll notice that it's episode 497. I don't know if you guys can anticipate what's right around the corner, but we are very close to our 500th episode, which is pretty exciting. I think at this pace, if something odd doesn't happen where we call a day of prayer and it doesn't add a, uh, we almost landed on Thanksgiving Day, I mean, which would have been pretty cool, which we could. I mean, Nathan and I have thought about sabotaging the system to make sure we delay it till Thanksgiving, but as of right now, we're scheduled for Wednesday as our 500th anniversary uh, episode. Uh, I don't know if it's an anniversary if, uh, if, if that's based on a year, but it sort of feels that way. Uh, Sandy has a, a look on her face like, what are you talking about? Uh, Well, we have uh, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday. So 498, 499, and then Wednesday would be 500. So say it again. Tuesday, what's happening Tuesday? Yeah, but Nathan is on Tuesday. So yeah, is there, yeah this isn't just my series. Yeah, this is, I'm not at 497 in the World War II series. That would be impressive. I mean, we're already a little impressed with my 88, but... <laughs> All right, so uh, the underdog principle. I'm actually not fully satisfied with my title, but I'm hoping it get, gets wings and flies as I'm going. I mean, even right before I got up here, I was wanting to change the title. All the drive in, I wanted to change the title. And I, I'm having a difficult time, and because titles to me, for whatever reason, have greater importance than they probably should, but for me, they're a placeholder. For years to come, I reference back to a title. And so it's, it's like I'm creating something, and I want it to be right. But it's not totally off, it's just there's something I want to say, and I'm not exactly sure how to describe it. Uh, words like the marginalized or the overlooked, okay? Underdog doesn't quite say that, but uh, underdog fits, because in the David and Goliath story, for instance, you have the obvious on paper, you know, if the Las Vegas odds makers are, are, are in, the, in the picture, they're going to heavy... Uh, heavy, uh, totally load up on Goliath and say, you know, this is like a one million to one. And so as a result, to bet on the underdog in a situation like that could make you rich. It really could, but no one's stupid enough to bet on a shepherd boy who's just, the only reason he's after the, the battle is to deliver bread and cheese. Who's going to do that? Well, in and through history, we have this dynamic of the underdog principle. God purposely seems to set up the storyline to create in the natural realm an obvious winner, and it's called the impossible. And by the way, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the God of the impossible, and so he creates this impossible, 
and then sets up a solution that everyone scoffs at and mocks. And so what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? Remember Goliath's famous quote? Uh, And Goliath, I don't think you recognize how powerful this instrument of war is that has just shown up in the Valley of Elah. And that's exactly right. The devil, in his, his boasting, in his arrogance, cannot see beneath. It's like under his radar. And he can't quite pick up on the fact that an instrument of war is being built that is going to take him down, and he cannot see it. But it's because he is living in this rarefied air of himself, all arrogant, thinking so highly of his own accomplishments that he cannot see something beneath that. It's in a lower atmosphere that he would dare not ever bend his knee to, uh, to enter into. So we're calling it the, uh, the underdog principle, but I'm going to go to one of my favorite storylines throughout this 88 episodes, and that's the Battle of Midway. And, you know, there was a, a movie that came out on it, and when I was teaching the Battle of Midway, I had not seen that, and it was interesting to watch it, and I don't even know that I, I don't typically just recommend movies, and I'm not recommending even this movie, even though it was fascinating because it was very similar to what I had studied, even what I had taught, except for the lens of it was not from the God angle, like God did something amazing. It's funny how in history you can have something that God dramatically did. Like in America, everyone knew God had intervened. It, it was just like in Great Britain, all the seven national days of prayer are called during World War II, and everyone knew God deserved the credit for stopping Hitler. And so they're just, they're, they're humbled within before the Almighty saying, God, look what you have done. And yet, as time passes, we still have the history, but we erase God from it, and we lose the true lesson in that. And Midway is one of those stories. Midway is a David-Goliath situation. The Vegas odds makers are going all in on Japan here. There is no hope that America has. You guys need to realize, here we are in America, this is a desperate hour. Because America has been caught off guard. We were asleep. We're in the Great Depression. We're sucking our thumb or our passy that to, to keep, keep my illustration going. And we are so stuck on ourselves. And so Great Britain is struggling over against the Nazis. And it's not looking good for Great Britain. They're going to fall to pieces. But hey, that's none of our business. And so America is sort of uh, nursing its own wounds. And Japan is going to surprise us. And that's what Pearl Harbor was, uh, December 7th, 1941. Japan is going to take advantage of America being off balance. America thinking of itself. And Japan has acted, they feigned, which means to fake, they faked a desire for peace. So America is buying into this whole peace thing with Japan because there's a vulnerability in the Pacific. And America has not been building up its, its military system. So it is not ready to go to war. It has a lot of potential, everyone would acknowledge that, but if you want to take out something that has potential, you need to take it out and hit it hard and hit it fast before it can get its legs under it. And so the battle of, well, the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the surprise attack is devious, it is mischievous at the highest level, it is evil. Because what it is, is it's saying, oh, we love you, America. We want to have peace with you. By the way, boom, not, we're knocking out your military. And their fleet in, at Pearl Harbor was the representative of the strength of America in the Pacific. 
And so as a result, what's happened is America is now vulnerable. It's like they just, got, they just lost their armor in the Pacific, and Japan has all the momentum. So what Great Britain is feeling against the Nazis is now what America is feeling against Japan. We have no defense against Japan actually coming and taking potentially Midway Island, the Hawaiian Islands, and then the west coast of America. We are not built for war. We are not set up to defend ourselves. And so everyone in America is beginning to tremble overnight. And so, however, as I said before, what is happening in Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, is there's going to be a sleeping giant awakened. And yet, Japan doesn't fully see what is happening inside of America. They look weak. They look like a shepherd boy delivering bread and cheese. Let's get them, and let's get them now. Before they get their act together, let's hit them and hit them hard. Okay, so now what I'm doing is, I, the reason I'm reviewing these three stories this week is because I feel like they are telltale for what we're going through in America right now. There is a direct blow on this country and not altogether different than the Japanese attempt to sabotage. The Japanese are not of a Christian ilk. They are of the exact opposite ilk. They hate Christianity. The number one thing they wanna purge out of their country is Christianity. This evil is attempting to sweep in and steal our country. And they want to control it while we are in a weakened condition. Okay, now I don't know if, if you just happen to be alive in America in November 20th of 2020, if you can see some parallel that I'm creating here. But as the church, I'm not ta talking politically. I'm talking about as the church, there is a movement to snuff out the voice of the church in this country overnight to the point where we no longer can be the factory of missions. We no longer can be the grand light that shines to the nations. And you could say, well, we already forsook that a long time ago. Yes, we have set down our weapons. We have set down our lamp. And in a sense, we've lost our oil in the lamp. And yes, but we still have the lamp. And technically, we still have access to the oil. And we have access to the flame of God. And I as one who is fully alert right now in this country, still desire to see us pick up that lamp and fill it with the oil and see it ignite by the living fire of God. And watch out world if that happens. If the sleeping giant of the church of Jesus Christ awakens in this country right now, this world changes direction overnight. And of course, that's sort of what I'm talking about here. The battle of Midway is an impossible situation. Japan is hungry for more. So I'm going to set the stage for this. Battle of Midway, May 1942. So to understand Midway, it's, it's confusing for many of us. Many of us have heard of the Battle of Midway, but we don't understand what it is. It's actually a naval battle, but what is, it's going to redefine naval battles. So it's, it's almost like hard to describe until you dig into it a little because naval battles up to this exact point in history are very different than the one we're going to see. You think of battleships coming up next to each other and aiming their guns at each other and go <laughs> That's what naval battles have always been. Something's going to change in Midway. So Midway Atoll is two ring-shaped coral reefs forming islands. And so I have a picture. You can see the two islands. They are just big enough for like runways and so you can store. It's like a, a stationary aircraft carrier is what you have. But what it does is it sets up a defense system in a strategic spot in the Pacific Ocean. And the Americans, this is their territory, and 
the Japanese know that if they could take these two, if they could, uh, if they could disintegrate this position, this stronghold that the Americans have at this strategic location, they have a bead on taking over America. And they, they're controlling the Pacific without any threat. So this becomes a very, very strategic location. So you can see why it's called Midway. I have, a, I have a picture, and if you know your map, you see China over there, and you see the island of Japan, even though it's not labeled, uh, and then you see the United States, uh, it's Midway. And so that's how it gets its name. I know it's not that creative of a name. Aren't you glad? I could have named this message just Midway, and that would have been profound, right? But it's more than just the location that I'm talking about today. It's the idea behind what God does when his people look weak. In fact, I, I honestly think he brings us to that point of weakness on purpose to get us to awaken to the fact that we need his power. There's no way we can win it without his intervention, right? So once he gets us down, he pairs down our Gideon army, and he says, so how you doing right now? So I feel weak, I feel small. So do you think I can do it? I do, God. He goes, okay, now we've got to work in relationship. You're small, I'm big. I get the credit but you participate. In other words, this has always been the, the plot line. This has been the storyline of the kingdom of heaven. So Winston Churchill in his uh, memoir says, stirring events affecting the whole course of the war now occurred in the Pacific Ocean. By the end of March, the first phase of the Japanese war plan had achieved a success so complete that it surprised even its authors. Japan was master of Hong Kong, Siam, Malaya, and nearly the whole of the immense island region forming the Dutch East Indies. Japanese troops were plunging deeply into Burma. In the Philippines, the Americans still fought on at Corregidor, but without hope of relief. So here's a, an actual map in Churchill's memoirs, okay? Now, I've added some stars to it, and I circled Midway in there. But what you can see is, you see that dark line? It looks like a nose, actually, that is extending out from Japan, from the Chinese area, and you see all these stars. These are major victories that the Japanese have, have taken. The big star up there is Japan. But they have now claimed and they're controlling all of this territory in the Pacific. Now before this, Japanese just controlled the island of Japan. So this is a major thrust forward and they are unstoppable. No one can stop the Japanese right now. And so uh, that... Uh, dotted line is going to be their next strategy. They, are, they never intended to get as far as they did, even in their grandest dreams. They never intended to actually be as successful as they were. So they're shocking themselves. And so now they have a meeting and they see that dotted line is like, this is what we're now going to take. And if we get this, that means we could take America. I mean, they're starting to dream so big. I mean, they're, they're overreaching is what I'm going to just acknowledge right now. But you see Midway is the big one. See, Hawaiian islands are over right to the right side of the, uh, uh, of the screen, and so you can get an idea of how close we are to the United States there. Okay, this is Winston Churchill continuing. Japanese exultation was at its zenith. Pride in their martial triumphs, martial meaning military, and confidence in their leadership was strengthened by the conviction that the Western powers had not the will to fight to the death. Already the imperial armies stood on the frontiers so carefully chosen in their pre-war plans as the prudent limit of their advance. But now in the flush of victory, it seemed to the Japanese leaders that the fulfillment of their destiny had come. Now, I'm, I'm trying to hint towards things here. There's a reason why I'm drawing this story up. Because what you see is human nature. You see Japan 
flush with victory. There's an arrogance and a pride. The Western powers don't have the will to fight to the death. And it causes them to step beyond what was originally prudent and reasonable. Because, hey, you know, we have so much momentum. The enemy oftentimes, when he reaches this point where he suddenly found a success that he wasn't expecting, the classic picture, of course, is the arresting of the Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. In other words, he suddenly just seizes. He's been trying to catch this guy for a long time, and then suddenly he has him. And then now he hasn't. He can even get the crowd to choose Barabbas instead. What a mockery of the Son of God. I mean, this is like jubilance, exultation. He is going to overstep, and he's going to fall into the classic trap that God sets. It's like, thank you for proving me the Messiah. Everything about this is actually being controlled by God, but the enemy is stepping into it. Again, on the human side, it looks weak. Vegas odds makers are saying, yeah, I'm going with uh, the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans on this one. This guy's humble. He's not even speaking. He's naked. He's pinned to a cross. I think we've got him. Are you sure about that? You see, when that underdog principle kicks in, God is at his strongest, not at his weakest. We may be at our weakest. Our circumstances may be at our weakest. However, God has this right where he wants us. So, but now in the flush of victory, it seemed to the Japanese leaders, this is Winston Churchill, that the fulfillment of their destiny had come. They must not be unworthy of it. These ideas arose not only from the natural temptations to which dazzling success exposes mortals, but from serious military reasoning. Whether it was wiser to organize their new perimeter thoroughly or by surging forward to gain greater depth for its defense seemed to them a balanced strategic problem. Winston Churchill continues, after deliberation in Tokyo, the more ambitious course was adopted. It was decided to extend the grasp outwards to include the Western Aleutians, Midway Islands, Samoa, Fiji, New Caledonia, and Port Moresby in southern New Guinea. This expansion would threaten Pearl Harbor, still the main American base. It would also, if maintained, sever direct communication between the United States and Australia. It would provide Japan with suitable bases from which to launch further attacks. Winston Churchill continues, they never comprehended the latent might of the United States. This is not an American saying this. This is uh, a British guy saying Japan underestimated something. Classic mistake right there. Classic mistake. I'm going to read it again, but I want you to interpolate that into our world. I want you to recognize that something is being underestimated right now. And I'm going to get to what that is, but I want you to start to rise up within with a midway type of fervor on your side. Because I know how bad it looks, okay? I'm not an idiot. I understand that we're backed up on our haunches. I recognize that it looks like the freedom of, uh, of, of nations to actually be able to exert the authority of Christ with boldness in this world is suddenly coming to a close. I, I see it. And yet I see something greater. And that is the testimony of God throughout the ages. I see it. There's a reason why he gave it to us. And so that in such times we would remember and we would turn from whatever we're doing, whatever is our fog bank, we would humble ourselves and grip it by faith. They never comprehended the latent might of the United States. 
They thought still at this stage that Hitler's Germany would triumph in Europe. They felt in their veins the surge of leading Asia forward to measureless conquests and their own glory. Thus they were drawn into a gamble. So I'm not going to go into specifics on this of what I would hazard to speak in regards to what's actually happening in our country behind the scenes. But I'm going to say in a summary, I believe it's this. I believe it's the exact same thing. Evil blinds itself. The devil is a liar. You know, when you're a liar, you sometimes can't discern between lie and truth. You lie to yourself and you deceive yourself. So as we have oftentimes said, the deceiver deceived himself. That's the cross in a nutshell. The deceiver deceived himself. How dumb do you have to be to fulfill all prophecy and prove Jesus Christ the Messiah? (laughs) You just crushed your own head. Satan, didn't you know what you were doing? Nope, he didn't. Yet he knows the Bible backwards and forwards. How did he miss that one? The deceiver deceives himself. He thinks he can win. He thinks he's stronger. He thinks he's greater. And as a result, he gets baited in because of his own self-importance, his untouchability. And as a result, he will expose his plans at a greater level. Classic enemy. Thus, they were drawn into a gamble. So what's going to happen in this exact time period is you're going to see a couple different things that are going to play into it that the Japanese cannot see. One of them, I'm just going to call it Japanese, Japan's Red Book. So the code breakers in Great Britain and America are, for whatever reason, like superhuman. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. When you study war history, you're just like, these guys are amazing. It's like this strange skill that both our country and Great Britain have is these code breakers. And we had some code breakers in the United States that figured out Japan's communications code. And as a result, it was called the Red Book. And so as a result, we knew exactly what Japan was doing. Japan's entire operation, though they were so much stronger, so much bigger, they were unstoppable, and we had a psychological weakness of feeling like, we can't stop these guys. We actually knew where they were going to be, when they were going to be there. And that's the Battle of Midway Island. We actually knew exactly where they were going to be. And the secret to war, especially naval war, is surprise. So we suddenly, even though we're the weaker party, have this underdog strength, this unusual knowledge. Okay, now stop right there. This is exactly where we're at right now. Do you know that I know what the enemy is doing? Not in specifics. But I know. Why? How? I have the Word of God. I have the Red Book. I know exactly how this turns out. I know what I'm supposed to be doing right now to win this war. The question is, am I going to do it? You know, that's the same question they had. You have all these, it's like, if you're wrong, this code, talking to this code breaker, if you're wrong, then that could lead to endless disaster here. You have to be right. It's like, that's the same thing we say to the Word of God. God, if I'm going to trust your Word, it better be right. Well, it is. God cannot lie. This code breaker could. God can't. Our, our fixed reference is undoubted. It is stable and secure for such an hour as this. So we have Japan's Red Book. I, I love this line in 2 Corinthians 2.11 from Paul. So it's talking about forgiveness in the context. But lest Satan sh- So forgive lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So there's something that Paul is saying, do this, because you do realize Satan will take advantage of us if we don't do what we know to do. 
Because we are not ignorant of his devices. That's a classic Red Book statement. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to position our aircraft carriers right here on this exact day. Because we're not ignorant of his devices. So let's do what we're supposed to do. In this context, it's forgive. In another context, it could be humble yourself, pray, seek his face, turn from your wickedness. You see, if we do what we're supposed to do, God guarantees that he'll do what he does. Our job is to trust that what he has given us in that red book, that's a pretty good name for the word of God. You know, when Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, is on that cross fulfilling all of that book, he's read. You know, so it's sort of a, a pretty cool concept, the red book. I like that. I might need to write a book called the red book. Uh, that's pretty cool. The sudden rise of the aircraft carrier. There's another thing that is underestimated here. It's like the underdog. Now, aircraft carriers are, at this exact juncture in the war, there's like a sudden realization of their value, okay? But up to this point, they have been devalued. I mean, they don't necessarily have the same armament, the same uh, military power. They, they slow moving. And so when Japan bombs Pearl Harbor to take out its, uh, its fleet, its naval power, it hits their battleships. And you know what it leaves behind? Their aircraft carriers. And so that's just one of the great ironies of, of Pearl Harbor. It's like, you, are you serious? You left their aircraft carriers? Well, the aircraft carriers at this juncture of the war were not the threat. As it progresses, the greatest weapon in the water is the aircraft carrier because all of battle is going to shift. Again, this is the under, underdog principle that certain things the enemy will go after at first, they look like, you know, they're, they're sort of waving their hands like, hey, shoot me. God's like, yeah, stand up and wave your hands. Meanwhile, that which is actually of the greatest power is still preserved. That's what we see here in this situation. So though the Americans have less aircraft carriers, they have aircraft carriers. And that's going to play an incredibly important role in the Battle of Midway. So Paul the Apostle is going to sort of help us understand aircraft carriers, because remember, up to this point, it's battleship against battleship. It's actually a ship trying to blow up another ship. Naval warfare is going to shift on a dime right here in world history. And suddenly, you're going to have aircraft carriers with all their planes on them send out planes. And you know what's fighting ships? Planes. And then the other uh, party sends off their planes to fight your ships with planes. It's like, this is a weird form of naval battle. It totally transforms naval battle, which makes the value of aircraft carriers explode. And so suddenly, aircraft carriers is all there is. Now imagine if someone sends off all their planes and then you blow up their aircraft carrier. They have nowhere to land. You're in the middle of the ocean. That means you didn't just deal with all that aircraft carrier. You dealt with all of, that, all of those planes. They have no place to go other than to crash into the sea, run out of gas. And so as a result, you're going to see this happen at Midway. It's like I don't know, like a shepherd boy picking up five smooth stones and suddenly taking down a champion of Gath. That's exactly what you're going to see unfold. Because this nature of war, just as Paul is going to say here, it's like, okay, up to this point, like when David fought the Philistines, he fought with real weapons, real Philistines. But now our battle is shifted, says Paul. We have shifted because of the shed blood of Christ, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we're able to fight a higher battle. So therefore, our battle isn't against the physical realm. It's not against the political issues. It's not even just the legal things. Though those have an impact, 
we can actually deal with the puppeteers that are controlling them. The spiritual powers and operations that are high above them, we actually are in a position to snip their puppet strings. Huh, that's pretty cool. So why would we fight in a lower realm with battleships when we actually have been given aircraft carriers? And we've been given the position of the enemy and they don't know we know where they are. And as a result, it puts us in an advantage position even though we're the smaller party. In fact, we're diddly squat next to what is coming against us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there's an aircraft carrier for you. They're pretty cool, I have to admit. And so this is going to be a shift of warfare. The Battle of Midway is extremely fascinating because even one of their uh, aircraft carriers, which was partly damaged in the bombing of Pearl Harbor, they're going to order it to be ready. It usually takes a year and a half to two years to build one of these things, I mean, at this time. So this is, it takes a long time to invest in this, and they're very expensive. And so they're like, we need this ready, I don't know what it was, like in two weeks, two months, I don't remember what it was. It was such a short period of time that everyone laughed. And they're like, no, we're serious. This needs to be ready. So they still had a huge hole uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the ship, and they just worked around it. It's like, we have to have that thing. So let's think about what an aircraft carrier is because I want you to recognize, I'm going to get, create a couple parallels here. An aircraft carrier being a symbol of the church of Jesus Christ in a strange way. Okay, listen to this. It's a warship that serves as a seagoing airbase equipped with a full-length flight deck and facilities for carrying, arming, deploying, and recovering aircraft. Typically, it is the capital ship of a fleet as it allows a naval force to project air power worldwide without depending on local bases for staging aircraft operations. It's like a mobile island. It's like, hey, let's move our island over here, and now let's attack, and then we can return to it. You don't have to run out of gas because you sent out your plane way out there, and now he can't return anywhere. And so as a result, it creates a mobile island. It's an amazing thing. It's everything you just read there sort of makes sense in light of the church of Jesus Christ. It's like this mobile warship. But do we recognize what we have? Do we recognize, I recognize that battleships is the, is the word of the day. Oh, how many battleships do you have? But God is saying, hey guys, how many aircraft carriers do we have? In other words, he's switching the war. He's saying, we're gonna fight this in the air. We're not fighting this just battleship to battleship. We're gonna fight it up here, a higher realm. This is exactly what God teaches us as Christians. If my people will humble themselves and fight up here, if they will seek my face and turn from their wickedness, we've got this thing. We've got them right where we want them. But if you're gonna try and fight battleship to battleship, you already had that blown out. Okay, I, you're too weak in that regard in the natural realm even, but in the spiritual realm, I have you covered. You start fighting with my weapons, we win this thing. So 2 Chronicles 7.14, now we have repeated this, and I'm guessing tons of people other than Eric Ludi have been repeating this scripture over and over again. And that is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So in the book of 2 Chronicles, you're going to see this theme repeated multiple times. 
Okay, even in chapter 6, you're going to see the same thing uttered in just a different phraseology. But in other times in 2 Chronicles, you're going to see this idea. So for whatever reason, God is establishing this in and through Solomon's reign. In this establishment of the temple, God is saying, all right, we have a land here. We have laws here. We have something healthy that could change the world. It could spread something into the world. But we are prone to falling away from that. So therefore, if this ever happens... That you, in fact, God's going to go out of his way to say, it will happen. And when it does happen, you respond to me in this fashion. I guarantee you my response. Okay, so you're going to see kings of Judah actually appeal to this same promise over and over again. And God does respond every time. As far as I'm concerned, we have enough proof in scripture to establish the nature and the character of God in regards to this. That if we do what we have been asked by God to do, God does his part, which should get us excited. Now, I don't know if a group this size is all that's needed to turn the tide of an entire country, but I sort of like the idea. It's just like Jonathan and his armor bearer. They turn the tide and God doesn't mind saving by many or by few. So I'm still going to stand on that. It's like, God, I feel like a very small voice here, but I'm not backing down. I had something stir inside of me in the last two days, which is greater than maybe has ever stirred inside of me before. And I'm trying to put words to it, but it actually, I remember what flashed through my brain was Richard Wormbrandt standing up in front of uh, that theater, remember when he was there in the theater and they were, uh, communism was saying they had all the KGB in the front row monitoring all the pastors to make sure that they were coming into line. It's like I felt what he felt. And it's just like, I'm not afraid. I'm gonna speak right now. And you do know what's gonna happen to you. Yeah, but I don't fear it. Feel my pulse right now. If it's racing, you'll know that there is no God. I do not fear what the enemy can do. I am in God's hands. I'm gonna make a statement for him right now. It's like this strange thing. It's like, whoa, oh, all right, keep more of that going, God. I want more of that. Uh, upgrade that even. Let's, let's keep pouring into that. I sense it. There's something God wants to do in us as the saints that builds us to be as Richard and Sabina Wormbrandt in the middle of a dark era. But at the same time, I feel like we haven't reached that point where Stalin's communism has tover, uh, totally overruled Romania. We are still hanging in the balance, and if I can stand up and push, well, why wouldn't I? It doesn't make any sense for me just to be passive right now instead of actively engaged, but not battleship to battleship, but to come in with the aircraft carrier and launch some some planes to take out their aircraft carriers, to take out their big dogs, and actually cripple them, which is exactly what's going to do. This is called the turning point in World War II, the Battle of Midway. It's interesting, it's called Midway, and it's the turning point. Isn't that just fascinating? But what is going to happen here is going to change the course of the entire war. And from this point forward, you're going to see a shift. And ultimately, Japan will be devastated. And yet, the real world, what you're staring at on paper, it was scary for the Americans. So let's look at 2 Chronicles 33. Remember, same book that I said, in this one book, you see this concept over and over again. We have the story of Manasseh, King Manasseh, who, by the way, for all practical purposes, you might as well boo and go boo, because he is going to be described as one who's going to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And his son is going to turn out really bad, right? But 
I want you to catch something in the midst of this. Manasseh is a tough one for me to use as a symbol, but what we see is Second Chronicles and the promises of Second Chronicles fulfilled even for someone who is rather dubious, okay? And we're, we're not going to look at him like, oh, now there's a guy you should really take care of. Like, he's a David, you know? It's like, well, okay, David, you made a mistake, but overall, your life has been pretty healthy. So when you humble yourself and pray and seek God's face and turn from your wicked ways, well, I can see why God is going to heal your land, but Manasseh? Manasseh's a bad dude. I mean, you, could, you could study it if you'd like, all the bad things Manasseh did, but you could just trust me right now and say, it's really bad. Yeah, it's sort of like America, what we have done in this country is despicable and detestable. What has happened under our watch as the church of Jesus Christ in this generation is despicable and detestable. And many of us, though we know what is taking place, have resigned ourselves to say, well, it's too bad. Instead of rising up and purging it. Of course, I, I know what's going on inside your head. What did you expect me to do? It's like the old illustration of the, uh, the Christians, German Christians in their church service and they have their pipe organ going and they're singing their hymns. Meanwhile, there's the, uh, the railroad car, the cattle car full of Jews that are going by and they're screaming for help from the Christians. What, what are the Christians supposed to do? What, what, what do you expect? I'm gonna jump out onto the railroad tracks and go, stop, and then poof, just get mowed down? How, what, what did I accomplish by doing that? So what did they do? What did the German Christians do? They turned up the volume of their pipe organ and drowned out the cries. I feel like it's a reasonable statement to say that we are guilty of the same behavior. And I do not want to excuse ourselves. But if God's people who are called by his name humble themselves, pray and seek his face and turn from that wickedness which is being exposed, God will, in fact, heal their land. So listen to this. The Lord spoke, this is 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 13. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Oh no, guys, that can't be good. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Okay, now I'm going to read this again because we have a bad guy who is now in a very bad situation. He is captive in Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Okay, I don't know if you're seeing a Second Chronicles pattern. By the way, this is in Second Chronicles. That's why the language probably even sounds similar. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. Why would you listen to Manasseh? Come on, God. I mean, you have to draw the line somewhere. This is a crook. But this crook is greatly humbling himself and praying, seeking God's face. And he's turning from his wickedness. That's what he's doing. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Well, God's the master of understatements. I have to admit that's a pretty uh, simplified way of saying God answered his prayer. and re I mean, he took him out of captivity and reestablished him in his kingdom. That's amazing. Okay, we don't know all the details in it, but we are seeing he did it. 
He did exactly what he said. So why do you think that story is mentioned? To establish our faith in the God who will even hear a Manasseh when he humbles himself and prays and seeks his face. So for many of us, we struggle by asking God to forgive us as a country and to give us mercy. It's, it's a weird thing because when you know how evil, the evil our country has perpetrated, you feel like, God, I, I just can't expect that you'll keep giving us mercy. I, I, God, maybe we just deserve this judgment. Well, we do, but every single one of us deserves judgment. But God's mercy triumphs over judgment. We need to remember our God delights and desires to give mercy. It is his first action that he desires. His first action isn't judgment. His first action is mercy if his people, don't matter if they're Manasseh, will humble themselves, greatly humble themselves, and pray and seek his face. Expect the unexpected. There's, there's so many great stories in Scripture of God doing what none of us had as an option. I used to sit in uh, church on a Sunday morning. This isn't healthy, by the way. I don't want any of you to model this. I didn't like being in church when I was young. I didn't have a really much of a relationship with God, if any, and I wanted to be watching the Broncos. It used to bother me that the Bronco games would start at 10 a.m. Uh, on certain days of, of the week, or certain days when they were playing out east uh, against the team, and so I would sit there and I would imagine all the things that could go wrong because I knew it was always different than what I expected. So I'd be like, okay, the Broncos are behind 2-0. The Broncos are behind 3-0. The Broncos are behind 7-0. The Broncos are, I, I would do this because I felt like if I thought of it, it wouldn't happen because God is, uh, something is always happening that I didn't expect. Okay, now that's an Eric Luda that has, no, it has nothing to do with God. But it actually is, there's something about that that's true. Have you ever noticed that no matter what you lay it out, like I think this is gonna happen, it never actually happens that way. Have you ever had a vision for your life? It's like I think in the next five years this is gonna happen. Well, I, I would love to see if any of us have ever been completely right. Expect the unexpected. It doesn't happen that way. That doesn't mean God isn't faithful. I've, I've oftentimes said that sometimes God will take this flashlight uh, of, and he will shine it forward in our life where we actually see something. You know, most of the time it's at the edge of our toe. Have you ever noticed that? And we're like, shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. But every now and then he'll go, whew, and we saw it. We're like, whoa, I see what God's leading me towards. And then we just think it's a direct line. But instead it's like weaving back and forth. In fact, sometimes you go all the way back here to the back wall and then back. It's like that wasn't what we were expecting. God is very good at solving puzzles. And he oftentimes loves, that's why it's exceeding and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Will we allow God to be God? And in a season like this, we can pray, but what we really want to pray is that God would be God and he would do what he does, but we need to hold him to his word. He is going to prove himself, he is going to do it, but he has a timetable that's different than ours, and he has a way that he's going to do it that may be different than what we are throwing out there as suggestions for God. It's like, I really think this would be a cool story. If you did this, God, boy, I would, I would laugh out loud. That would be really cool. And he's like, I have something even better. And we're like, oh, well, I want to see it. And sometimes he doesn't share it with us. We just get to see it unfold. Here's a great illustration of that. Acts 9, 10 through 11. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now what's happening right now? We have a breakout of persecution in the church. What do you think is happening to this young church? They are praying. I mean, this is a, 
this is a difficult hour, okay? And you have this one character that is really, like, you can just see all these young Christians, these newly budding Christians are struggling with practicing forgiveness and loving their enemies and who's on their, the top of their prayer list. I could just see, it's like, okay, guys, uh, let's pray for our enemies this morning. Do you have anyone in your life that is really bothering you? Mm-hmm, Saul of Tarsus. This guy's at the top of the prayer list when it comes to praying for enemies, okay? This guy is a machine that is devastating the church of Jesus Christ. And so now Ananias is praying, okay? He's doing what he's supposed to do. This is the, you know, it's a rough moment for the church. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold... He is praying. Okay, now that's unexpected. Did you have that one figured out? That, you know, when, when, God's, when you're sitting here going, God, what do you desire? I want you to go. <laughs> you could fill in the blank of who this would be. And I w- they're, they're ready to actually be an instrument. What is the twist in this story? God is going to take one of the enemy's greatest weapons and turn it against them. You see it? Okay, that's pretty cool. I like that. That's a good storyline. It's a God storyline. You see, God is faithful to do what he is going to do, so even when it looks dark, even when it looks bleak, God can turn a Saul of Tarsus. May 30th, 1942, on pins and needles. It's a little similar to what we have now, right? It's on pins and needles. We don't know how this is gonna go. They didn't know, how, the whole nation of America is hanging in the balance right now in May of 1942. So it's a David versus Goliath. Like I said, the Vegas odds makers, you know, have it all figured out. Japan is unstoppable. America doesn't have the power to, uh, to hold it back. But remember, America has a red book. And America just happens to have some aircraft carriers, which are suddenly going to become important, even though up to this point, they're just, it's just now dawning that that could be important. Naval warfare is shifting, and what the strategy was before this is just suddenly morphing. God has his people right where he wants them at the exact hour he wants them there. Winston Churchill says that midway the airfield was crammed with bombers and the ground forces for the defense of the island were at the highest alert. Early information of the approach of the enemy was imperative and continuous air search began on May 30th. Sort of like a national day of prayer, continuous air search began on May 30th. That's what we should be doing. Continuous air search. We need to be fighting this battle at a higher level. Four days passed in acute suspense. Boy, that would be a tough four days. Four days of doing that. Constant air search. At 9 a.m. on June 3rd, a Catalina flying boat on patrol more than 700 miles west of Midway sighted a group of 11 enemy ships. The bombing and torpedo attacks which followed were unsuccessful except for a torpedo hit on a tanker, but the battle had begun. To go into the battle is so intriguing. I mean, everything, no, I'm not going to go into it. We don't have time for that. But it is such a fascinating battle because even during the battle, it looks like they have the element of surprise, but they're going to lose the element of a surprise and their initial attack isn't going to work. However, the Japanese were on a strict silence uh, mode where they didn't want to betray their positions to the Americans. So when one side is hit, they don't tell the others that they were. Just hit, they don't want any communication. So as a result, the surprise is maintained. So the Americans think they've blown the surprise, which is their only advantage. And yet, I mean, it's a good story, okay? I'm just gonna summarize it that way. You can study it. We're not gonna do it here. So we have one character that I introduced quite a few months ago named Rear Admiral Wade McCluskey. 
And this guy is, I'm going to just look at him as sort of symbolic of the church of Jesus Christ. He's the Enterprises, which is one of the, uh, the aircraft carriers, was the Enterprise. He's the Enterprise's air group commander in the Battle of Midway. So this is like us right now. Okay, we're Wade McCluskey. And we have a job to do, but our battle is up here. Okay, we're, we're, we're on this uh, aircraft carrier, but our battle is to fight up here. And so let's just walk through McCluskey's adventure. He gets a clear assignment. He is supposed to go out. They have what they are guessing is the coordinates for this fleet, this Japanese fleet. And so they have a clear assignment, but when they get to that spot, there is no one there. And so you have to recognize that when, a, when the planes leave the aircraft carrier, now they are exposing the fact that there is an aircraft carrier. So the fact that they're even flying around out there, that can be picked up by any of the Japanese, which exposes the fact that there's an aircraft carrier, which then, what are the, what are the Japanese going to do? They're going to look for the aircraft carrier to attack it when the planes are gone. Because then that's devastating to the Americans. So they're in a, then the, suddenly they're in the confusion because, well, no one's here. So they're going to have to make an adjustment. But they have a fuel shortage, which is just, of course, every good story has to have a fuel shortage. You see, if they try and make an adjustment and go in a different way, did you know that they are likely going to run out of fuel? But if they don't make the adjustment and they just go back, then they've accomplished nothing and the element of surprise could be lost and this is hanging on a dime right now. So McCluskey is going to make a decision and that is he is going to make a box turn. He's like, he has a hunch, you know, one of those hunches and he's going to make a box turn and he, everyone knows in that, uh, in that uh, squadron that likely they're not going to make it back but they have to do something for their country right now. This is the hour. And you know what they're going to run into? The Japanese fleet. And this is going to actually shift. Remember I said Midway is, this, is the shift of, the, of World War II. And this is the moment. And it's one guy making one decision to not care for himself. It's interesting that self-sacrifice is actually the key that is going to unlock the turning point in World War II. This guy's basically going to say, I'm willing to go down, but we need to find that Japanese fleet. And they do. And they hit it. So Admiral Chester Nimitz, uh, McCluskey's decision, this is what he said, decided the fate of our carrier task force and our forces at Midway. And so if you look beyond that, and Midway decided the fate of World War II for the Americans. So guys, I'm going to summarize it this way. The church is the difference maker. There is something that is understated right now, and I get it. I understand why this side, this evil operation is sort of mocking and holding in contempt uh, this, this rabble out there, because this quote-unquote rabble has not been functioning as the triumphant church of Jesus Christ. I don't know that I would fear it much either. However, if this people that is called by God's name, Christ's name, that's actually what we're called by, we are Christians we do what we do in the name of Jesus. We are called by his name. And if that people will do something very specific, and that's humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, this whole battle shifts. We have the red book. We have aircraft carriers and we have McCluskey in the sky. It may mean self-sacrifice. 
It may mean that some of us need to go down. But I believe the history of the church of Jesus Christ can shift right now. And that there can be another season where we are wide awake and ready and appreciative. It's one of those remember the Alamo sorts of seasons where we're like, Never again are we just going to fall asleep like that. Never again are we going to lay down our weapons. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this invigoration. Thank you for the defibrillator paddles upon our chest to give us a second chance at this. Oh, Lord, here we are. Use us, send us. Our battle is not battleship to battleship. It is up at a higher level. And if we fight our battle where it's supposed to be fought, this thing is going to be won. Father, teach us how to fight in the air. Teach us how to fight in prayer. Lord, stir your church now. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.